Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take your Bible. Let's uh, look at Jonah chapter 4, the final chapter. I've entitled the message, Messed Up Priorities. Do you know that uh, godly people or God's people can have very wrong priorities? Do you know that? You know that that's true. I've had wrong priorities, and I'm sure you have. And we can be uh, sort of messed up uh, on tilt, not working according to the directions of the manual. Uh, we can be. After having received so much good and so much blessing and so much favor, like Jonah, he was of the school of the prophets. He had done a work for God and God wanted him to do a great work, and now he is uh, he's really disoriented. His perspective is skewed. And I'm saying the, to you that the more I read and study this four-chapter book, this rather amazing book, it's a mysterious book for sure, the more I see my own self in the pages of this book. And perhaps you do as well. You... Uh, and I can have messed up priorities and value the things that we ought not. We certainly live in a world that is messed up. It's messed up. You know that. It's a post-Genesis 3 world. We live with the dust of death everywhere. And, and men and women that are born in darkness are spiritually dead and and uh, sometimes the values that they express and embrace and sometimes the leadership position enforce, you go like, that's all screwed up. That's all messed up. That's anything but godly. You, you and I know that. Our world is upside down. It's truly a Humpty Dumpty world. And what should be valued is often not, in, and what should be valued uh, at time, a lot of times isn't. The world defends horses and whales and, and yet permits the killing of unborn babies. It's messed up. That's severely messed up. That may be the greatest example of this messed upness of our culture, which is made of people like you and like me. Many of them do, don't know Christ, and therefore don't have a new nature, new disposition, and think worldly, selfishly, sinfully. But then so can God's people. We lived in, in, in a messed up world where, and I have nothing against athletes. I, I love athletics and, and certainly played a lot and, uh, and have some great heroes on the gridiron and, and other places. But when someone can shoot a basketball and do it very well, and they make multiple millions of dollars, or even as I read the other day, 
Uh, a defensive tackle signed for $100 million. Highest played uh, guaranteed. Or was it $60 million guaranteed? I don't remember. Enormous number. And all his job is to get in there and tackle the runner or the quarterback or whatever. Uh, paid multiple times over what teachers get paid. They get a penance. They form the hearts and minds of young ones. What could be more important? You know, it's right up there. Or doctors who uh, care for us when we're sick and sacrifice many years of their life to study that when we have a problem or our kids have a problem or loved ones, uh, we take them to the ER, to the specialist or to whoever, and, and you know, we say, well, they make a good, not like the guy shooting the basketball who, or pastors or missionaries or those who do research that benefit mankind in ways that we enjoy. Uh, there's a market value put on that, and it, it expresses messed up priorities. That's the world we live in, and we're not going to change that until Jesus comes for sure. Well, Jonah had been used by the Lord to bring his word, God's word, to this pagan people in Nineveh. And as we saw, it resulted in the greatest revival in the history of mankind. Hundreds of thousands of people, if we're right on the population of Nineveh, were saved in this three days of preaching. Through this reluctant prophet, it shows us again that the power is not in the person, but in the Word, through the Spirit of God. I mean, he's reluctant. He's no longer disobedient. God paddled him, but good. Recommissioned him. And he makes the 550-mile trek from the shoreline, the beach there, to Nineveh. Well, now he's walking through the town, and we see he's the reluctant prophet. He had no heart for these people. And the message and the power of the message is where the real power is, and God changes these people. The book we said is a, is a story of evangelism and the sovereignty of God. It is a story of God's great mercy for lost people like us. And it shows the tininess and the hard-heartedness of his servant, of which we oftentimes play that part. And we'll see it in Technicolor as we look at this passage, for we oftentimes also reveal hearts with messed up priorities. The book comes to an end, and we find the height of Jonah's messed up thinking, where he's, now he has a suicide wish. He wishes he were dead. And it comes out three times in these 11 verses of chapter 4. And now I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's pretty low. And not only that, he's wishing now that, that the Ninevites, the hundreds of thousands of people there, that they were all dead. Talk about the original death camp. This guy, he's a piece of work. But then aren't we all? He's wishing that God would just wipe them all out and kill him too. Wow, 
What a story. But there we are in the pictures of God's Word. We are there, you and me. His thinking was demented. His heart was ice cold. Wow. Well, in the closing chapter, Jonah expresses his displeasure in verses 1 to 5. And God explains himself. Imagine that. The mercy of God, the condescension of God to reach down to this reluctant, disobedient, uh, puny-minded, hard-hearted prophet, and he explains himself through a series of questions. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, God loves to ask questions. Did you ever know that? God loves to ask questions. Oftentimes we think of Socrates, you know. His method of teaching was to ask one question, and the answer comes back. Then ask another question, you know, the professorial type of movement among your students. We think like somehow maybe he invented it. I got news for you, God did. And God asks all sorts of questions. He's going to quiz this reluctant prophet who really wishes he were dead. He asks him a series of questions, questions. And God does that. God asks questions because what? They're effective in helping us to see the states of our own hearts. God could command us, and he does at points. God could rebuke us, and he does at points. But there are times when God is more inductive in his approach, and he asks a question that ought to reach down into the depths of your heart and mine with uh, the thought, yeah, that's right. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, took the fruit, went and hid, they fell. God came in the cool of day and said, Adam, where are you? I got news for you. God was not seeking information. You may have lost your children at the mall. I've done that. And I looked everywhere. Where are you? Not car 54, but where is David? He's lost at the mall. We went on the PA system. That was worthless because you couldn't even hear it above the crowd of the people. Well, God isn't looking for them. Oh, Adam, where for art thou? Adam, no. To penetrate his heart, for him to consider what he has done and where he has fallen from. God probes. How about with Cain? God asked Cain the question after he killed his brother, Abel. Hit him with a stone and put him down and killed him. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where's your brother? It's a probing question of which he answers wrongly with a question, am I my brother's keeper? You know, that's the first question that fallen man asked in the Bible, and you can almost write that right over the whole of human history. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. And the cross is the highest point that answers that as our Lord laid down his life in keeping or his brothers and sisters through his mercy. How about Jesus to Judas? When the, uh, Jesus is approached in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas leading a band of Roman soldiers to arrest him. And Judas comes up, hypocrisy of hypocrisy, and he kisses him on the cheek. And what did Jesus say? Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? 
a question, God's final question, and we'll read the text in a moment to Jonah, is simply, should I not be concerned with Nineveh, that great city? And the curtain drops and the book ends. It's the third and final question of this chapter. And should I, Jonah, not be concerned with this great city of Nineveh? The answer is not given. I think it's left open for all of us through all the time to answer it. The answer is, it ought to be in your life and mine, since God is concerned for people, so should you and so should I be, and not be skewed in our priorities and in our thinking. God has great mercy and compassion for people, not things, not comforts, but for lost men and women. And we should so align our own thinking with God's. Jonah should, rather than having the petty, puny thinking and priorities that he exudes with. Well, let's just read these 11 verses. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. I just want to back you up to verse 310. Remember the great verse of the whole book? Just to summarize, God was pleased, 310, and he relents the great verse. 4 verse 1, but Jonah, get ready, wherever there's a but, but Jonah is displeased. What a contrast. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, that's Spain. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you, notice the question, have you any right to be angry? Jonah evidently doesn't answer. And Jonah went out, and he sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade. He wanted to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. Incidentally, it's the first time in all the book that it ever states that Jonah was happy. He was unhappy about everything, unhappy about uh, the mission, unhappy about the storm, unhappy about the fish, unhappy about the recommission, unhappy about the results of his preaching. And now he's very happy for the first time. You can't miss it. He's very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, here it is again, another question, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. 
But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. They must be very young in age. And many cattle as well. And here's the final question as the curtain drops. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Wow. Well, there are four ways that we, like Jonah, may also reveal ungodly thinking in our hearts and to be messed up, skewed, and have the wrong perspective. Each one of us, it just jumps right off the page to us. And this is, a, this is really a day-to-day thing for us as believers. That is, if you know Christ the Lord is your Savior. It's not a one and done. I got that done, I passed, never have to go back to it. Uh-uh, nope. Nope, we all fail at these things. The first way in which Jonah and we, many generations later, reveal this ungodly thinking so that we might be warned not to have this Jonah syndrome, this spiritual disease of the soul. It's found really in verses 1, 2, and 3. When we, when, uh, when we do God's work, even with much success, and yet secretly despise those among whom we work, when we do that, we evidence the fact that we're messed up, skewed in our thinking exuding a sense of pride that somehow we're better than those who we live among, among whom we shine as lights or serve or salt. That was Jonah. He thought uh, being a prophet of the nation of Israel, the particular blessed people of God, and they were filthy dogs, unsaved violent pagans that deserve death. They were people for sure, but they were not of the same uh, uh, level as, as Jonah. He despised them. I think secretly, maybe it came across more in his preaching, the fact that he didn't even want to deliver God's message. He didn't even want to go there. And the way he responded to all of it, he got an F for it. What a contrast between the heart of God and the heart of this prophet. A, God relents in 3.10. God is pleased, but the prophet is displeased. Jonah became hot. That's actually the word in the Hebrew. He became very hot. You think of it, it's not a, way, a bad way to portray anger, because that's what we do. She blew her top, we'll say, when somebody gets angry. We all know what that means. He's angry. It's like he's shouting at God. He's forgot that he is the clay and God is the potter. He was hoping that God would destroy this uh, people of Nineveh. How could he be so far off in his thinking? How is it possible for us to understand him? Now he wants to die. The whole thing seems so mysterious and strange. But I remind you, at such moments, we too become disoriented. You know, when you and I wander into sin, we choose to do that. 
Sin never just happens to us. We're, we're responsible, and we'll give an account. In a day that doesn't like accountability and likes to blame shift, you and I choose sin. And when we do that, and if we don't quickly repent and come back to where we ought to be, we get disoriented. Our perspective changes. It gets skewed, and, and things that are precious and holy and wonderful become clouded and distant. God's church, His people, the Word, the gospel, the wonder and love of Christ becomes uh, foggy to us. And things that shouldn't lure us and draw us, and we, like Jonah, become uh, disoriented. Here he's wishing for death for himself, for them. He, he's messed up. He wasn't the only prophet in the uh, Bible that that happened to, that is his desire to die. Remember Elijah on that incredible account on Mount Carmel, there where he slew the prophets of Baal, and then he heard Jezebel's threat that he is going to be wiped out. And he ran like mad. It was one of the original uh, marathons. He ran way south, and was down at the uh, Brook Kidron under a juniper tree, and he was so faint, so exhausted, that he prayed to God that God would take his life. Well, Jonah's like that, and that is he's praying, Lord, take my life, not for the same reason as Elijah, and God met him there and fed him with the ravens. It's an amazing story. But Jonah, he's disoriented. He is secretly despising those whom he worked. He was prejudiced in his heart. Beware of prejudice. God is made of all people everywhere, one blood. We're all the same. We all have the same parents. We all funnel back to Noah and his sons and their wives, to eight. And prior to that, back to the original parents. We all come from the same. And those in blood chemistry know that and genetics know that. And for us to think, well, I'm really something. You know, God forgive you for that. Really, sometimes it's a problem when Americans travel around the world. Most people would love to be Americans. They see the culture, most of it's not good when they see it uh, exported around the world, and they wish they were Americans. They wish they were you. They do. Sometimes missionaries have that problem. They'll go away, and they'll, they'll eat American food, even faraway places, and they have the, the attitude that somehow they're they're, they're special. We're not special. We're all special in that we're made in God's image. But we all stand on level ground here. Every one of us do. You do and I do. I jump down and I join you with all humanity. All of us. Jonah ministers the word to people that he was truly prejudiced against. He hated them. He said like last week, it was like the Nazis. For a Jew from New York City, to, knowing about the death camps, then to go over to the Third Reich and to bear the love of God uh, in Christ to Nazis and all that they were doing. The Ninevites were like that. They were cruel. They were heartless. They were butchers. Talk about the butcher of Baghdad. Nineveh, uh, you remember, is located in today's country of Iraq. Disorientation. Jonah hated Nineveh. He hated the people of it. He knew of their violence. 
And he knew this, that one day that uh, the Ninevites were going to, to destroy part of what we think of as Israel. The northern tribes, in not too many years, they would come down as God's spanking paddle and paddle the northern tribes for their disobedience and carry them away. He knew that. His Amos and Hosea, the other prophets, uh, prophesied of it. He knew that. Well, even more, maybe he felt like a fool. Maybe um, having received God's message of condemnation and judgment and to see that God didn't follow through on that message, he felt foolish. I prophesied that God was going to wipe them out, and he didn't do it. God, why would you send me with that message and when you knew, in fact, you weren't going to do it? Maybe those were some of the disobedient, the reluctant, the prophet with the messed up priorities was thinking. This destruction, but that is now averted. Well, we can, you and I live and work among people that are too offensive. Do you notice that? We can do that. We're each one of us. If you know Christ, uh, we certainly serve the Lord here, but most of the work that you and I do and the work for Christ is as we scatter from this place. We work in offices and in factories and in schools, and we work in all sorts of places, in the marketplace and in our neighborhoods. And uh, have you noticed, not everyone is wonderful. Have you? Sometimes they stink, they smell. And the way they treat us is, is, is not good, right? They, they hurt us. They hurt us with their mouth. They say things about us that uh, the sticks and stone thing, it hurts. And it's, you wish they beat you up, at least it would heal. But the other thing is wound your heart and you can't, you have a hard time letting it go. And you stand and I stand in the grace of God and the mercy of God and we're forgiven and, and we're not so sure we want them saved. They hurt our kids. They do. They hurt us. We live in a, a hurtful world. And God wants to use you and he wants to use me as salt and light among people that are like that. And not to forget the pit from where when we came from. And not to be prejudiced or to be hateful and angry. Know the grace of God and the depth of God's mercy and, and not share that with people that you and I both need. No, they need the Lord. That's, that's what they need. We don't need more money. We don't need more of this or more of that. People need Christ. And we can have messed up priorities and be hard-hearted by veiling and not sharing the wonderful words of life that God wants us to do. And we can even go so far as to wish for their ruin. I wish that God would just wipe them out. I remind you, you and I are the arms and the hands and the heart and the feet of Jesus. You are to be salt and light. The people that are people. I heard Chuck Swindoll say in his teaching some time ago when he was a Marine and uh, was being discipled, 
And in the process of time, is in the Far East on an island, and he came to his disciple and he said, God is calling me into the ministry. And his disciple said to him, and he was going to, he said, I'm, when I get out of the Marines, I'm going to go to seminary, which he did. He went to Dallas Seminary. And his disciple said to him in response to hearing that, prepare to have your heart broken. You see, when you pastor people, and people disappoint you, and people say things, and people don't do what you know they ought to do, and you have a heart, the shepherd's heart for people, and you love people, and it's open heart and open arms. Prepare to have your heart broken. People say horrible things, do horrible things, don't do what they should do. It's not only pastors. It's every one of us. All of us are the ministers in your families and in your neighborhoods and your lives. All of us. And consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And consider how they treated him. The most horrible thing that was ever done in all the world was the thing that was done at Calvary. That was the worst thing. It was worse. Worse than the death camps in Germany, Poland, and the other areas. And yet out of the very worst thing that ever happened in all the world... God brought the greatest good possible, life and salvation. So in that, while you're abused and hurt and disappointed, and I am as we give our lives to people, watch your heart. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't return to them what they do to you. And only Christ can do that in you. It's easy to just punch someone out who hit you. Or stuck their finger in your son's eye. You, grab, you want to grab him by the throat and shake him. Or worse. It's the grace of God. Jonah was messed up. He secretly despised these people that were the object of God's mission to him, didn't he? And so can we. There's a second Wrong way of thinking that reveals ungodliness in our hearts. To warn us not to have this Jonah syndrome, the spiritual disease of the soul. And that's this verse 2. When, when we use God's word against him to justify our disobedience, we're ungodly and we're messed up. Jonah here in the uh, verse, in verse uh, 2, let me reiterate that. Jonah prayed in his anger, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's chapter 1. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. That's his disobedience. I knew that you were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Jonah, uh, it's rather interesting because we get to peer into his heart to hear his thoughts as to why he fled in disobedience in chapter 1. And Jonah, in essence, in our text for verse 2, is using God's word to justify his disobedience. I, did, I didn't go there, Lord. I know you tapped me on the shoulder and said, Jonah, i got a great work for you to do. 
And I, you said go east, and I said, uh-uh, I'm going west. And here we delve into his heart, and we discover he knew something about God. And he, and he uses this. This is a passage, it's almost verbatim out of Exodus 34, verse 6, where it tells us that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Jonah is using God's word against God, as it were, to defend his disobedience. That's, a, that's what a futile thing that is. What a foolhearted thing that is, and yet we'll do that. We do that. Jonah knew the doctrines of grace, but the grace of the doctrines had not yet met his heart. The chief example of someone using God's word like a sword against God is the example of Satan. There in Matthew chapter 4, where it's known as the temptation of Jesus. Remember that? The three temptations? He tempted Jesus more than that. Mark tells us that. But in chapter 4 of Mark, verses 5, 6, and 7, let's look at that and remind ourselves of that. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 5, 6, and 7. Right after the Lord's baptism, just as he's has entered his public ministry. Satan, because the Lord has just rebuked him using the word, it's like Satan says, oh, you want to use the word? I can use the Bible too. In verse 5, the second temptation, then the devil took him, Jesus, to the high city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, Satan said, throw yourself down. Jump. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan misquotes Psalm 91. That's what he does. Oh, do you want to oh, trade Bible verses? Here's a Bible verse. And Jesus answers again with the word, verse 7. Jesus answered, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And he ends that temptation once and for all. Listen, God's word is, is certainly wonderful. It's wonderful for us to read it, to have a copy of it in our own hands, to memorize it, to hide it in our heart, to understand it. And it is to be obeyed. You and I are never to use, uh, we are to be careful how we use the word. We are never to use it in, in, to engage in twisting of the scriptures or in Bible-sounding ideas that either ease our conscience or grease the sled of our disobedience. And we do that. And people have done that. And I've, I've heard so many of these through the years, it would curl your ears. People say all kinds of things. A lot of times when folks run into sin, I'm the last one they want to see. You know, you always felt that way about The Undertaker, right? 
I used to take my students, uh, when I taught in the college, we go to the funeral home, and, and it was always an interesting uh, lecture that the funeral director in the city gave to the young divinity students. And uh, there were a couple of times there were actually uh, uh, bodies laid out in caskets in the other room. I thought it was great. These guys needed, they needed to see that, and they needed to see the end of life and the urgency of the gospel. Needed to see that. And on one occasion, one guy, <laughs> one of the students, he fell over. He slipped on the uh, linoleum uh, floor. It had just been polished. <laughs> and I went over and I told him, I said, hey, I wouldn't be laying around here like that if I were you. <laughs> oh, prof, what do you mean, you know? <laughs> Get up. Get up. People use all sorts of strange things to justify their behavior. People that ought to know better. I, I think God understands my circumstance. People say that. In the, in the midst of what they know what the Bible teaches, they'll treat themselves like they're the great exception. And I'll remind them, there's no temptation uh, among men that uh, is not common to them. You're not the exception. You're not the, the unusual. You're not the footnote. God expects you to do right. And we do that. We'll twist the scriptures. God forgive us for that. And using Scripture, well, God is a God of love, and we sort of blanket. And it's true, He is, but that's not all that He is. I think God understands. Or we'll use Bible-sounding phrases, you know, to justify ourselves in our disobedience. How about the phrase, uh, God helps those who help themselves? I, and I, I purposely didn't want to say it and ask how many of you to vote, thinking that's a Bible verse. I don't want to know. I know all of you know that's not a Bible verse, and it's horrendous. Now, God is for industry and hard work, of course, of course. But people will use that type of nonsense thinking. God helps those who help themselves. It's the height of selfishness. Sounds biblical. It's not. To justify all sorts of selfish-styled self-focused living. God help us from that. It happened to Jonah. It happens to us. We still have a sinful bent within us. Here Jonah's uh, trying to justify his sin. May God help us not to do that, but to be, to, to be obedient, to rightfully divide the word, uh, not being ashamed of it, but living it. Well, there's a third way in which you and I, like Jonah, may reveal ungodly thinking, not only secretly despising those we live and work among and minister to as salt and light, or of using wrongly God's word to justify disobedience. But third, verses 5 to 9, when we care more about plans than people, we're ungodly in our thinking. And we're messed up. We are messed up. This is something that uh, is really the heart of the message of this book. Uh, if I could just have each one of us get an inoculation against this, 
the sickness of the soul, that we would really embrace as a people God's love for people and give our lives to that and not to self. It would change us as a church. It would change us. We would bridge the words of life, the gospel, to all sorts of folks, those nearest, those that we don't like and those that we love dearly. This place would be full to overflowing. You'd say, you've got to come. You've got to hear the word of God. You've got to. We would press them. We gave out $100 bills for everyone that showed up. Or you got paid. You'd be bringing them in by the busload, wouldn't you? Say, there's a business opportunity I'm not going to let slip by. We would. But to bring people under the hearing of the gospel, the hearing of God's word, is the most wonderful thing. Privately, in your home, in your workplaces, as you share the God's word, and then bringing them. So you got to come and worship the Lord and hear his word. The truth of it is, is that we often care more about plants, vines, and things like this, gourds, depending on what translation you have, than we do people. The P and the P sounded better to me. We care about plants more than people, don't we? And Jonah did that. It's a rather strange Jonah, verse 5, he goes out. He sat down at a place east of the city. He's on high ground. He makes some sort of lean-to shelter to shade from that hot Middle East sun. He's there waiting. It's the early 4th of July, maybe. Fireworks. That's what we're going to see. It's a, it's a take-two of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, I can't wait to see this. Messed up. Then the Lord provides a plant. It's a vine. He grows up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. What grace. It's the last act recorded in the text of God's mercy to Jonah. And he's very happy. But at dawn, God provides a worm of some sort. And it chewed the vine so that it withered and died. And the sun is blazing now on Jonah's head. He grows faint. He wants to die. And he's angry now. He's angry. He loved the plant. Is that crazy or what? Some of you are plant nuts. Actually, I was sitting in my study yesterday, and uh, I spent several hours, and I was sitting there. I tried making a phone call. No one answered. And I was looking at a plant that was in my study that's probably six years old, and I thought to myself, ah, I never watered that. Over two weeks. <laughs> and it was looking pretty bad. Susan's helped us water. <laughs> it was withering and dying. Now, I don't love plants, but I do love their beauty and the flowers and all that. Appreciate that. Look forward to spring with that, don't you? Amen? Maybe it'll come sooner. Jonah, love this goofy plant. The thing just came up, and he's like, he's, he's in love with it. He's really, he's, he's out to lunch, this guy. I mean, he's, he loves this thing more than anything else at that moment. Uh, messed up. Well, what can we say? A, he left the city. Why did he leave the city? 
Why? I don't see God directing him out and say, okay, Jonah, that's three days, get out of here. No. Why did he leave? He should have stayed. He preached. There was great uh, a movement of God, the spirit among people. People were saved. It was the greatest revival in history. He should have stayed there and taught them the way of God more completely. Discipled them. Started bringing them along. But he shows total detachment to this people. He leaves. He leaves. He's going to watch the fireworks. He builds a shelter of some sort, a lean-to, shield him from the sun. He's acting like a kid, like a child. He's out there. He's on the mountain. He's under the shelter, looking west at the city, sucking on his thumb. He's a child. Aren't we all at points? And God meets him there, causes a plant to grow. What grace, what mercy. He's happy. He's, oh, I'm so happy. Isn't this great? Wow. The next day, as you know, the plant dies. He's angry as angry can be. He cared for the plant. Incidentally, we believe it was a castor oil plant. Uh, they, would, uh, they would grow very, very quickly. Uh, and reach uh, a height of 10 or 12 feet, just like you could almost watch it growing. Castor oil, that brings back some bad thoughts to some of you. That's what we think. That's what we think it is. I think they're probably right. But how petty. How petty. He loves the plant. Wants to see the people scorched. The plant, he didn't make it. He didn't sustain it. It was there for so brief a time, and now he's angry again. What a contrast. I'll tell you, he had forgotten and needed to learn again, maybe, that it's people that last forever. You know that people's soul, the souls of people are immortal. People live forever in either heaven or hell. That's it. Not stuff. Not stuff. What a contrast. He could care less. He couldn't have cared less. When you and I care more about the passing things and comforts in life than people, we have the same attitude, messed up attitude, wrong priorities, says Jonah. We care more about me, myself, and I, and my creaturely comforts than about other people. We have the heart of Jonah. There was a movie that came out a number of years ago. Uh, some of you saw it. It was rated, it was rated uh, for adults because of the horror of it. Do you remember Schindler's List? That was something. Something. There in World War II, and Schindler, a businessman, uh, saved thousands of Jews that would have been exterminated. They worked in his factory, and he protected them at great cost. I'll never forget the end of that movie uh, where he stood there realizing that if he had sold even his own watch, he could have used the money from that watch to purchase some of the Jews 
that were going to and probably had been exterminated by the Nazis. And he was weeping, remember that? I mean, that was... He's talking about life here and now. He's not even talking about the destiny of souls. It was a powerful moment. I'll never forget it. You and I, when we love plants more than we love people, and all that plants represent, we're messed up. This is a battle that I fight as well, daily. I live in the same world. I have the flesh like you. New nature, I want to love the Lord and serve Him, but I can from moment to moment have the wrong priorities. You know, when our family gets together like yours, you love to tell stories, don't you? And we laugh and laugh around the table, faith will make a great feast, and, and we'll eat. And those are very special days. There are a few days now when we're all together. Well, one of the stories that Jonathan loves to tell is when, one of the days when I blew it very, very badly. But we all laugh now and everything's okay. But it's a reminder to me, at an instant, I was messed up. The day came when uh, I had ordered a mini bike. The boys were small. Jonathan was probably yay high and David taller. And it came. It came. They shipped it. I couldn't wait for it. Got it out of Cleveland, Ohio. We had the back. There were no houses there. And we could ride the mini bike all over the place. Oh, it was great fun. And it finally came. And it was just about all assembled. I had to put the fork in and the front wheel and a couple of other things. And the boys were there all excited. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, we're going to ride this thing, you know, and so on. <clears throat> and uh, it was shiny and red and black. Oh, it was beautiful. And we got it all ready, put gas in it, pulled the cord. The thing started, had a clutch assembly on it and all. I couldn't wait to jump on it, i got to tell you. Jonathan asked me, hey, Dad, can I ride it first? <clears throat> and... Uh, I said, uh, yeah, okay. And uh, to which he did, he jumped on the thing, went about 10 feet, hit the curb, uh -huh, uh, flew over the handlebars, and the mini bike is lying there, and the road in the curb, dent, uh, engines uh, conked out, and I was about 20 feet away, and I went running over, and guess what I attended to first? John would say, Dad, remember that? You ran right by me to pick the bike up <laughs> and to see what was. And, you know, your reaction, you don't rehearse those. That's really what's inside. That, that reaction, you know, and I go like, oh. I checked the bike, picked it up, and the, there's, <laughs> are you okay, son? I'm telling you, I still need the grace of God daily, moment by moment, as do you. And I'm sure you have many bike stories in your family. Thankfully, they all laugh about it now, but at that moment, it hurt him quite a bit. Jonah cared more about plants than people. And he showed in this the tininess of his heart, the hard-heartedness in contrast to the incredible, wide, loving heart of God. And we play the part of Jonah, don't we? 
The fourth and final way in which we are like Jonah, revealing ungodly thinking in our heart, is when we think we know God to be just, but we forget about the wideness of his mercy. We're messed up. And we exude with the wrong priorities. The Lord God is a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He is. I don't minimize that. The, uh, the old Puritans were fond of preaching, flee the wrath that is to come. There is wrath that is going to come. And if you're in Christ, uh, you are saved from that. And that's the only place of salvation. And you are saved by faith, by trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior. There is a wrath that is going to come, and God is just. But that is not all that God is. Don't ever truncate or pervert the, the God of glory. He's more than a God of wrath. He's a God, also a God of love and a God of mercy. He's the great lover. He is. He's the great lover. Some of you have had occasion to study world religions and sometimes it's a satanic ploy to throw them all together, you know, as if they're all the same. Man in his educated rebellion against the God is, likes to do that, cloud the Lord God that is. I'm here to say to you, if you've studied that and read anything about that, you know that there's nothing even comparable to the only God that is. No other, none of these other so-called religions know anything of a God of love, of sacrificial love, that he would so love sinful men and women like us that deserve the justice and the wrath of God, but took upon himself our suffering, our punishment. I'm saying the deep, deep love of God for us it stands all alone by itself. God is a God of wrath and a God of justice, but he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. They deserve destruction and death, and so do we by sin in our lives. They had committed great sin. They were an evil people. And how soon Jonah had forgotten God's mercy to him. And we have amnesia just like that, don't we? God is so kind and generous with us. He has saved us if you're saved. And the mercy of God has been wide. And there's been room at the cross for you. And we nickel and dime people. We do. I despise that in myself and hate it when I see it. And, and the reality is, as one man puts it, man's memory is short. It's short. We forget God's treatment of us. Jonah forgot God's mercy of the fish, the deliverance, the second commission, even the plant. It forgot all of that. But God, in his mercy, visited the people of Nineveh, and they were saved. And it reminds us that God is infinitely more merciful than we are. David knew that. When in a moment of discipline, he said, no, I'll cast myself upon the mercy of God rather than on men. God is merciful. Don't you ever forget that. 
God closes with the final question, should I not be concerned with that great city? Should I not? It's just left hanging there as the book closes. This question leaves us uneasy, yet it reminds us that each one of us are to answer that question with our own lives. Will you live for self, or Jesus says, will you live for me? Will you be my hands and my feet and my eyes and my, my heart for people? People that smell and are nasty and you wish maybe I'd destroy them. But never forget, I didn't destroy you. Should I not be merciful for this people? B, the wideness of God's mercy was clearly measured with the outstretched arms of Jesus as he hung on the cross Answering forever, how much does God love us? And it's like God saying in the arms of Jesus on the cross, this much. The mercy of God is wide today. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. One day the door will be closed forever. That's how much I love men and women, boys and girls measure of the length to which the love of God will go. It's like we teach our children, right? Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Or was deep and wide. I failed that class. (laughs) The wideness of the mercy of God. That's the book of Jonah. It's a marvelous book deep and wide. Well, there's room at the cross for you. Maybe you're here and you're not saved. There's room at the cross for you. Come and join the rest of us who are sinners, who are forgiven, growing in grace. We still sin, but God picks us up and reminds us he who has been forgiven much loves much. There's room at the cross for you, and so I say in Lesson number one for our lives, have you tasted God's mercy? Have you tasted it in your own life? Have you bowed your heart in prayer and said, Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner? It doesn't matter if you're old or young or somewhere in between. You must be born again. You must. You must today. Today's the accepted day. Call upon Jesus today. Number two, ask God to root out of your heart the pride that causes you to think that you are better than others. You may be more handsome or more beautiful or wealthier, or you may be the boss or more skilled or an American or of a certain nationality or background. It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters where you're going. Ask God, Lord, root that out of me. Root it out of me. I hate it. I despise it. That I might be your hands and feet and eyes to all people. Oh, God. I hate that pride. Number three, have you learned that the immortal souls of people are the most important thing on earth? It's people, not plants. 
the way in you and I think about people and the way that we live among them demonstrates really whether you really believe people are more important than plants. We're to say it, Paul, for me to live is Christ. Christ gave his all for others, and so should we. That's the happy man, incidentally. That's the happy man or the happy woman to live unselfishly. So the most unhappy, most miserable people are those that are in the height of selfishness, self-focused, me, myself, and I, unhappy to the nth degree. But those that spend themselves in caring for others in little ways, a drink of water in greater ways, that's true happiness. That's the bliss of God. When it says, blessed are those, it means, oh, however so happy. That's what we ought to be. Number four, do you care more about your comfort, your stuff? Remember Ecclesiastes? Than you do for the people near you. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive me for that. Remind me again. Get me on solid ground. Give me clarity in my vision. Give me a heart that beats after you, the things that you beat after. And finally, ask the Lord to deliver you from having the Jonah heart. Lord, forgive me for that. And share God's mercy with all other people. Use a track. Use your life. Use your voice. Use a time of discipleship, ladies' study. Open your homes, your hearts, your lives, your all. I got news for you. When it's all said and done, those are the things that really count. Those are the things that will add value, not only now, but throughout all eternity. Wow. We can easily have messed up hearts and lives, can't we? Jonah, exhibit A, messed up. Our world is skewed, tilt, upside down, screwed up, messed up, whatever you want to call it. Don't you be. Let's hand-to-hand combat this spiritually every single day. Lord, deliver me from the Jonah-type heart.